Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. The Law Report with Michael Mutsuning Bill on Kaya FM 95.9. Good evening and welcome to the Law Report. It's good to be with you this evening. My name is Michael Matsuning Bill. We're talking about COVID, all the regulations. What effect have they had on prison life? What effect have they had on our criminal justice system? That's what we're talking about. Um, you've got a loved one in prison. Uh, you've got, you are yourself in prison. Do you give us a call? 86 That's is a show for you. The Law Report with Michael Matsuning Bill on Kaya FM 95.9. Danki Sotomea, she's back again tomorrow. You can look forward to yet another segment from her. I mean, when we talk about, you know, lockdown, many of us experienced that it was a shock. We're feeling it for the first time. And um, we, 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 we didn't know how life would look. But I mean, imagine if you are in prison, how that must have been for you. Or in fact, whether there was in fact a difference. For a lot of people, when you're in prison, all you're looking forward to is that visit even if it happens once a week even if it happens once a month you're looking forward to that one visit where you get to see your loved one and that's your light from the prison cell that's your that's that's the moment that you live for and suddenly you're learning about this phenomenon and you you you're learning through the channels of prison and and maybe we'll get to find out what those channels are the information is not as free flowing as as it is for somebody who's not in prison and Part of what you then have to face is your new life, but also the fears. You know, I can imagine I was fearful in my own house, a house that I control, yet I, I didn't feel completely safe. I wasn't sure about, you know, people that came to my house. I was very sure not to even let people into my house, never mind going shopping, etc. So it was a very difficult time for us. And, um, and many of us are still recovering from the psychological trauma that that brought. But but we've never stopped to think, at least I didn't, on what kind of trauma this might have been for somebody who's in prison. So that's what we're looking at tonight, at least in the first part of our show, where we're talking about the effects of COVID-19 on prison life. In the second part of the show is, I remember when this hit, we were told as lawyers that we would have permits um, and... And everything else would be figured out as as we went. We didn't understand how the permits would work, um, but at least we were part of the people that were essential services. And all the cases that were enrolled around March, all of them were cancelled. In other words, if you were going to go and have a case the following week after lockdown, that case was cancelled. It wasn't proceeding. But that was in the civil space where nobody's in prison. And what we want to cover tonight is what actually happened and what is happening about cases that pertain to criminal law. Because in criminal law, unlike when I'm suing you for, for, for a few pieces of silver, I can wait because I'm getting interest. But somebody who is in prison or somebody who is uh, hoping to get a bail application, how are those treated? So that's what we're looking at in, in the second part of our show. And, and then, of course, I'll tell you about the last part of our show. But, but it's sort of um, in, in, in three segments. So I look forward to, to hearing from you. Any calls, any questions that you might have, please do, do give me a call. The number to dial is 86 Are you in prison? Were you in prison? 
do you have a loved one in prison? Did you go through the criminal justice system where your bail um, couldn't be entertained because of COVID-19 that nobody understood how it worked? So that's what we're talking about. And I, I really look forward to engaging um, with you. I want to welcome uh, uh, my guest. I'm going to be joined um, uh, uh, by Correctional Services, the department, and um, and perhaps let me let me start with uh, by introducing um, uh, uh, Tapelo Chere uh, Mateke. Uh, he's a former inmate. Um, Tapelo, good evening, and thank you very much for talking to me tonight. Good evening, sir. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I mean, I mean, maybe you know, as as we kick off, maybe just give give you know give the Afropolitans we we talk about you know. Um, you understand prison in a way that few of us do and maybe just give us that background on how how how, how you get to know so much about prison life yes awesome uh let me also greet uh your listeners i know a lot of inmates are listening right now in prison mm. and um i think for me right now you know uh, what comes to mind when we talk about uh prison challenges in prison and um you know the rights of inmates in in prison mm. you know um I think it's also seasonal things that happen in prison, you know. And um, when you don't know your rights, your rights are easily violated. Mm. But um, what I have observed while I was then serving time, there is um, a different mindset of inmates who are serving time and inmates who are still awaiting trial. Mm. You know, uh, usually inmates that are still awaiting trial, they are ignorant of a lot of things. That even their basic rights in prison, you know, what they should expect and what they shouldn't expect. But mm. guys that are serving time mostly are guys that know their rights, you know. Mm. So I remember when, when I was sentenced and um, went to uh, serve time at Sun City, you know, there I met a lot of guys who were already well informed, educated. Remember, there are guys who are arrested. Um, they were sentenced being lawyers, you know, they were, you know, either uh, uh, lawyers, prosecutors, you know, those different professions, you know. Mm. And when, when they are there, they also enlighten a lot of uh, inmates inside there. So we got to know of our basic rights in prison, you know, things that you need to expect from the facility itself, and things that are not done accordingly. We learned that you need to address them in writing. You know, that's the first approach, yeah. you know. Um, if you're not happy with something, uh, you write to the head of section, the head of section, if she can't handle of this, she, she can't handle it, it will be escalated, you know, to uh, different levels of management up until it reaches, you know, uh, people that can make the favorable decision. If not, um, you learn that you can file, you know, a court motion where you can approach the court concerning that particular matter. And, mm. you know, um, I remember, for instance, there was a guy in prison when they introduced orange uniform. Um, you remember before the orange uniform, it was a green, a green prison uniform. Mm. So this gentleman refused to wear orange uniform and he took the department to court and he won the case and he still wore green uniform when all of us were wearing a orange uniform, you know. So so it's quite a dynamic environment, hostile at the same time. And um, yeah, it's about how much you know, really. 100%. Uh, let me also welcome the Department of Correctional Services, uh, Singabako Ngumalo. Thank you very much for joining me. Are you well? Very good evening and thank you for inviting us. 
thank you very much. I mean, we know that handling COVID-19 as well as the regulations that came with it was very difficult for, for many of us outside of prison. And, and, and maybe if I could just invite you to just paint a picture of how it was in prison, um, in a various, uh, correctional services facilities, how, you know, how it was rolled out, how it was handled, um, before we sort of get into the, you know, sort of the, the, the nitty gritties of it, please. Yeah. I think COVID-19 challenged not just how we're about to, you know, put in place measures, mm. but even just the mindset, the thinking, because there was already a word that uh, is going to be a bad path, meaning that we'll be carrying out bodies mm. due to the structure of our centers. When you talk about physical distancing, then one will say, but what do you do in an environment where there's already overcrowding? Mm. Then when you talk about uh, physical distancing, you know, that's, that's crazy. You know, you can't have that. But then people overlooked, you know, other preventative measures, which were there to say, if you're able, you know, to then put those uh, preventative measures from, you know, um, uh, uh, going inside your centers, then you will, the easiest way you would have won the battle. But as correctional services, we said, you know what, let us not be scared. Mm. This thing is here, then let's think it through, but also involve everyone in it sure. so that we, we go through this journey together. And I think that has to us a lot. Mm. And, 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 and I mean, take us through. I mean, it's, you, 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 the concerns were legitimate yeah. because if you think the, about... Mm. Yeah. The concerns were legitimate, legitimate in the sense that um, uh, we could see what was happening in other countries, especially in Europe and, yeah. and, and, and in Asia. Yes. But their correctional facilities were hard hit. And then we had to look at, you know, those case studies. Then we had to come up with a strategy to say, what would be the best form of defense that you can apply as correctional services? Yeah. We said, let's put in place preventative measures. We, we, but we then said, look, reality is that COVID is here and it will find its way. Once it's inside our centers, how will we deal with that? Mm-hmm. That's when to say, you know what? Containment and treatment then will be key. But we also said, let us look at our centers, diagnose them in terms of their strengths, their weaknesses. We didn't think that, that you know what? Overcrowding is largely in the metropoles. When you go in the outskirts, there's no overcrowding at all. Mm. Then that's when to say, you know what, we may have to move quite a number of inmates to centers where there's no overcrowding. Mm. So that, you know, we make some space so that whatever measures that we put in place, you know, they, they do work. And that assisted us because where to then workshop the strategy that we had. And but we said it's going to be dynamics in case the situation changes all the time and that has assisted us. But if there's one thing which I think challenged not just correctional services, every institution in the country is infection prevention control measure, what they call IPC. I think many institutions, including us, were found lacking because you need to have committees in place. They need to meet, you know, regularly to look at how do you control, you know, infection uh, prevention, you know, in your spaces. And that we learned serious lessons. You will know that East London, we had an outbreak. Yes. We had to go in. So each time we had an outbreak, when you go in there, the first thing that we pinpoint is that, you know what, we don't have infection prevention control. And then we had to put that in place. And that really worked for us. Hence, even today, you can say, yes, unfortunately, we have lost uh, especially in uh, in uh, official 171. But, you know, looking at Excuse the number me? of people, we lost something, we lost 171 officials and 71 inmates. But mm-hmm. you said, looking at the numbers that you predicted, 
no one even thought that you know the, the numbers could be so low. And what's your present population? Uh, we are now standing at 140,000. And when COVID came in, we're at about 156. But remember, we had to place other inmates on on, 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 on parole. But those numbers, only 13,000 of them qualified because mm. we needed to follow the necessary processes, mm. you know, mm. as detailed in the law. Mm. So it, it, has, it has been tough. But, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a, re, it's a remarkable, um, I guess, achievement because... If if I understood you correctly, you said seventy one deaths, right? Yeah, it's only seventy one uh, out of one hundred and forty thousand. I mean, that's that. Yes, and that 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 is staggering. Yeah, that that is staggeringly impressive because if you think yes. about, um, if you if you think about how we control it, one a, a lot of the control measures are to keep, um, you know, not to gather and and prison by its nature is about gathering people in, 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 in one space. And the yeah. fact that, you know, if my math were quick enough, I'd, I'd, I'd be able to just, you know, tell you how in percentage terms, how impressive yeah, that yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. But another thing which we, we did very well was the um, uh, treatment measures. Our, mm. our recovery rate is standing at 98%. Because we said, look, when people get infected, how quickly do we render relevant treatment? And it was to say, if in every facility it must have sites which will use for quarantine mm. and that will use for isolation purposes. And each and every site must have professional nurses. Mm. We have to employ nurses. And all our centers have additional nurses because we we, we, we had nurses before, but the numbers were so low. Yes, so we had they, to, they, they were not dealing with yeah, the pandemic. Yeah, mm. No, no. They were never going to cope. So we had to ramp up. We employed quite a number of them, and we've seen it working. It has really assisted us quite a lot. And and you, you know one one thing. I mean, when I had COVID um, in in December, and and what was interesting about my uh, infection was that I didn't have the fever and all the typical symptoms that you know we were all told about fever. And you you, you go in and people ask you about about your temp. My temperature was perfectly normal, and therefore I would pass a lot of the measures that that p- people put in place. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how no you were, clean. how you were able. I mean, with so so my, from my own uh, experience, the the measure of checking temperatures is only partially effective. Partially, yeah. No, the, our screening. We said, how, how did you manage with your prison waters that have to come in every prison, single yeah. day? Yeah, but no, our, our screening had to be intensive. Mm. We said our screening will include taking of vital signs because mm. we already knew that we have people who will not display any symptom. Mm. And those people become major spreaders. Mm. So we said, let us take vital signs of people. Let us also uh, do a thorough segregation. Those who have comorbidities, we put them, you know, separately. Uh, you know, those who could be, you know, maybe say are sick with other diseases, you know, in their system, so that how we, the, the, the measures with that we put in terms of protecting them is different from the rest. And also, even the ones who have been admitted, the new admitted inmates, we like quarantine them for 14 days, we monitor them, then we put them into the, uh, um, the general inmate population. So it was all about managing, you know, cross-infection to say, even if you do find cases, how quickly are you able to respond? I think for us, it's what made a difference. So, so say, the response time. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, so whenever there's a case, you don't deny it, but you quickly jump into it and then you prevent, you know, potential spread. And we've seen it working. Hence, even if there's an outbreak in one center, we go in there like wolves. You no, know, we deal with it. You know, 
we we screen scrap everything, you know, we we segregate everyone, we run testing so that at no point, you know, you have people who are not then uh, depicted or, um, or, or that were able to, to pinpoint that these ones, you know, could be positive, but then the rest came back negative. So we didn't want to take chances. We said to ourselves, look, it's our break and we're going to fight it up until the end. Hence, even now, our operation model has, has been transformed greatly, you know, to say it can no longer be business as usual. We're fighting an enemy which is invisible. Therefore, we need to be successful. Let me do this. Let me take a break, and, and we're going to come back because I, I, I still want to talk some more about this. If you've just tuned in, we're talking about the impact of 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 of, of COVID nineteen on various facets of our life, but but of course the the less spoken of uh, facet, which is prison life. And uh, once once I conclude my discussion uh, with uh, Singabako Mumalo, I'm going to turn my attention a little bit to dealing with the criminal justice system and and I, and I alluded at the beginning of the show how courts just simply shut down and that was the first reaction and only urgent applications were being entertained by courts so and 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 of course it changed with time but I want us to just talk a little bit about that I want to take a break and when we when we come back I'll be taking more of your calls on 086 00959 The Law Report on Kaya FM 95.9 Welcome back <laughs> To the law report with me, Michael Matwini Bill. I continue my discussion. I'm talking to uh, Tapelo Chera Masheke, who's a former inmate, um, as well as uh, Singabako Ngomalo, who's at the, uh, from the Department of Correctional Services. And uh, before we took a break, I was just utterly impressed by the manner in which um, COVID-19 was handled by the Department of Correctional Services. And and here's a funny thing, uh, uh, Singabako, um, you know, how I got COVID is still a mystery because I took all of the precautions and yet I still got it, right? Um, and 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 that's me in my private space and you guys were able to do so well within, within, a, w- within a prison. Now, here's something that I'm trying to figure out from a point of view of, a, of, a, of, a, of an inmate. Um, they have visitation rights. They have a few other rights. How did you deal with that in, in, in sort of in your very critical ambition of ensuring that you control infections but also not erode people's rights? How do you balance that? I want to say to you we everything had been smooth out in line. Mm. It has not been smooth. You remember the, the, uh, the around April 2020, uh, May, where smoking uh, was banned and selling of cigarettes. Yeah. I think selling of cigarettes. Yeah. The tensions were so high in our centers. Mm. A number of inmates did not understand why <laughs> selling of cigarettes was in necessity. Well, a number of people outside of prison didn't understand yeah. that. <laughs> it, it, it was even worse in our centers. And uh, we really had to uh, make it a responsibility of our centers to go down to inmates, engage with them you know, engage the mood and, you know, continuously to talk to inmates so that, you know, you know, they could understand. Remember, with inmates, it meant chances are very slim for them to access cigarettes compared to those outside who could still, you know, use other methods. But what was even worse, we had to suspend visitations. Mm. That, you know, that also challenged us because now you had other inmates who were saying, but now it means I'm vulnerable. I can no longer 
access some basic necessities, then we had to mm. say the department. Oh yes, because uh, I mean, I didn't out. think of that. Maybe just to pause yeah. and emphasize that point yeah. is that when so, the visitation yeah, is not just the person that's coming to visit, is that they're bringing also supplies. Yeah, 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 mm. a number of amenities that they bring with them. So we had to say, look, well, visits, you know, have been suspended. It therefore says the state needs to come in and fill that gap, meaning say the issue of toiletries, you know, we do, we do supply, but you need to go beyond that. And then now we have to say, well, we cannot, you know, make a measure. Let's open up an avenue. We then said to health centers, they need to open bank accounts where then families, you know, could go deposit monies and use the reference number, which is the present number of an inmate, so yeah. that we could go then withdraw that money and make it available in, in the system so that inmates, if they want to procure something from the shops, Inside, inside our centers, you know, they can utilize that. But you also know that not all inmates, you know, will have uh, support from their families. So it also meant that the state needed to come in and fill that void. So it was quite a, a lot of, you know, looking at the situation, being truthful and say, you know what, how best do, do we offer a practical solution to an existing challenge? Uh, hence, then our standard operating procedures, you know, had to, you know, change from time to time so that, you know, we, you know, we could adapt. Fortunately, when we moved to uh, uh, alert level two, then we could start now uh, opening up for visitations, but also under very strict uh, and, uh, regulations and, and, and also even then non-contact, one, one visit a month. Again, it was still a challenge for some, but the good thing is that when you engage with people, people understand and they listen. Because we explain to them to say, it will not help you to not help us when you come in big numbers because we'll not be in a position to control. And if you get infected, whom are you going to play? Mm. They would then say, let us utilize a system of booking where you book and say, I'll be going to look up visiting Sinabaco on a Saturday at 11. Then we're able to you know, uh, put in place a, a plan that we'll have to say at 11 while sitting out from the gates to the visitation center and to the facility where you're going you know, inside the premises. And that's as well. Even now, as with level one, we are, we have, uh, you are now utilizing the system and you've increased those visits now to two a month. But it's all about, you know, being flexible, adapting, looking at your strategy, looking at what's happening on the ground, and then respond to that quite effectively. And also giving an ear, you know, to your audience, because in this case, inmates, you know, you know, when they say, look, we are feeling pressure here, you've got to offer a practical solution, otherwise we'll have a crisis at hand. And COVID, you know, it brought so much fear. Fortunately, when a person is coughing or is feeling uneasy or something different, then the person will raise their hand and say, hey, I'm not feeling well, please check what's happening. And we are able to respond, you know, instantly. So I think those are some things that we we'll want to keep even moving forward, even post-COVID, so that the type of care that we make available to inmates is one which is working for Remember, people are there, you know, you know, to be safe or rehabilitated, and then eventually they put respect to society. You want them... You know, when they're out there to become role models, to do something positive and contribute positively to communities. Therefore, you've got to treat them humanely. And you, whatever that you do, you also need to treat them with respect. And we always even say to them, they must also do the same to our officials. So that at the end of the day, they have an environment, you know, where there is, you know, respect and then shared responsibility. So that at the end of the day, you know that as an inmate, I've got this responsibility. As an official, I have to assist you in terms of transforming your life. And in that way, our correctional centers will, will indeed, you know, do what is expected of them. How, how, how is, I mean, uh, uh, from from my normal life, um, my 
face-to-face meetings with people have have literally been reduced to naught point something percent. A lot of our meetings are taking place um, virtually. How, how has technology um, influenced you maybe going forward? You know, so I, I, I say to people, you know, going forward, people won't even need big boardrooms and big offices because people are just quite happy to just have virtual meetings and there's so many suppliers of of those kinds of facilities has 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 you know this experience with covid um maybe changed you know how technology is employed by prisons if if at all and maybe as you do i was wondering also um as you answer that question i was wondering also whether inmates are entitled to cell phones um, or the use of cell phones. How, how how do you work with cell phones? Maybe start with that bit before yeah. before uh, we, we. Yeah, mm. yeah. No, cell phones are classified as contraband. They are not allowed. Yes, because they are then used for all the all, all sorts of things. Yes, and then it becomes a challenge to manage. So we don't allow cell phones in our centers. But unfortunately, they do find our insight through other means. But whenever we get them, we remove them and we charge people even criminal. Right. So that's one. Yes. But then what COVID has done, it has challenged us to a point where we could, uh, we had to be frank and said, you know what, our, you know, um, information technology system, you know, ICT is, uh, is, is really lagging behind by mm. far. We needed to do something quite, you know, um, dramatic. We had to uh, then launch e-corruption looking at even automating quite a number of things which are so basic and when you automate them they make a whole lot of difference they even eliminate duplications even the force that you need in terms of warm bodies on the ground because mm. we needed also to cut down the number of officials who report for duty at the same time mm. so then at least now we're busy with that e-corrections it's assisting us in that regard but even now even in this have been challenging us to say if you can't have physical visits, then create whether it's video or you no know, conferencing, whatever that is, is bringing itself even in other countries, so that you, you know we move with you know time, you know with modern mm. times as well. And and in South Africa, we don't want to classify ourselves, you know, as a third world country. You know, we want to see ourselves at the top. And it's some of the things that we are looking at yes, financially, the, the, you know, the fiscal is quite tight, but that cannot be an excuse. You know, you always have to explore. So we are looking at other means because the issue of just a telephone alone is not going to help. So unfortunately, inmates had to uh, use you know, you know the, your, your public phones inside our centers. But we were looking at various solutions because we've got to move with times. Uh, COVID is forcing us, you know, to say, you know what. Technology, you know, is a viable, you know, um, a vehicle that you need to use in terms mm. of even transforming yourself. Mm. So I'm pleased with that because it's even challenging us as officials in, in the manner that we do business, how we meet. We're so used to flying, you know, driving distances, all those things, you know, those face-to-face meetings. We, we had to cut down. And it's amazing when you look at the savings that mm. we've made out of that, out of just using, you know, your, your 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 online platforms even just to have those meetings. So these are the things that we're saying, you know what, some of them will have to, you know, continue with them, some are just there and there, but there's a lot that we've learned and uh, we are saying ICT must be, you know, uh, at the top in terms of, of our priorities so that uh, 
the solutions that you know will rip out of it will indeed transform how you look at corruption and services even in, in the next 10 to 15 years to come I got one more question for you, but but I'm just uh, I've kept Tapelo uh, 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 Masheke uh, quiet for 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 a bit. I mean, I mean, obviously we, we we've said quite a bit, and 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 a lot of the, um, you know, uh, a lot of what we're hearing around COVID nineteen would have been after your time. But maybe you know, uh, uh, Tapelo, your your reflections based on what has been said. Um, uh, because I, I'm, I'm going to just close off this topic. Maybe your, your closing remarks, Tapelo. Yes, uh, I, I was hoping you give me the, uh, the same amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, run a prison, then I will. <laughs> <laughs> because, because right now, uh, the correctional services has been speaking, and um, you know I'm representing inmates and ex-offenders. Hundreds. As I speak yeah. here. Mm. And uh, Mr. Singaba Kumumalo say, uh, we've been knocking in your offices since I think it's been eight years now. My business partner, eight, now, years. You know, eight years for so many things. I have your numbers here on my contact list. We've been contacting you, the whole management to the commissioner and the minister. I don't want to talk about the experience because I still need to meet with you. And I need you to kindly take my calls, please. At least maybe we can talk to you. You see, the things that you are addressing, some of the information you speak, obviously, in favor of the department. And we don't want to be against the department. But for all of us to move forward and have clear direction, we need to be honest about the challenges that are in prison and everything else. Right now, Mr. Singaba Kunumalu, you're speaking about the visit, visitation rights and stuff. I think you have done a very fantastic job. I mean, with um, teaching other inmates to other prisons, I know they were not happy. But maybe because they were not going to get visits uh, when it was maybe permissible. By law, an inmate must be in a prison very close to where the family is. You know, that's one. But it's mostly because of they need to get at least a visit um, as convenient as possible. And then uh, with regards to the strategy that they have devised, I think, um, I mean, that's the best that they could do given the situation. But we are ex-offenders. We know prison. We've been knocking in your office. You know, we went to the minister. Yeah, but, but I mean, Tabela, just, just get, I mean, yes. yeah, we, we so get it. What You've been I knocking. Want, what yeah. I want to know, what I want to, to, to mention is that uh, with regards to the money that families of inmates deposit to whatever account, in prison, prices um 120% more, if not 200% more. Um, a, a product of 20 rents is sold for about 50 to 60 rents. Now, if an inmate is being visited or money is deposited by an elderly who gets pension, mm. you know, I can tell you they're not going to get much out of that. You know, you can go to any prison, interview inmates, find out how much do they sell items, you know. So, so it's, it's infringing on their right, you know, to buy something. And when it's normal visitation right, you know, you go to San City Prison, go at the gate. It's so inhumane what happens there. They, they, they have to take out um, items. For instance, uh, a coffee has to be dished out in a plastic maybe of ice. How long is it going to last, including roll-ons? Things that are supposed to go in, especially toiletries, you know. So, so the dignity of, of inmates and their health is put at risk.
you know. So, so there are just so many challenges that we can mention. Unfortunately, I can tell that uh, you probably don't have much time anymore, you know. But there's just so many challenges that are faced by inmates. And sometimes it's because uh, the department itself doesn't know what to do. And sometimes you may need people like us to help in those challenges. Now, um, there are inmates who stay um, around Johannesburg that are in free state. Believe you me, it's going to take them years for them to be transferred back to where they are as soon as we go back to our normal life uh, so that they can be visited. You know, but no one wants to listen to them. You know, uh, so many times when a person is deserving of um, a, a visit, you know, maybe, maybe a person is allowed to pre-visit, you know, but because maybe they will not be in good terms with one official, that inmate's visit may be reduced to even one. And look, you can cry all you want, but you will not be given the rightful visit that which you want. Before you get to the minister and to the minister, your case will be long coached. You know, so so there's just but so many things that are happening. The overcrowding in prison, um, they, for instance, in San City where I was, it was single cell, uh, a cell that is meant for one person. You find that we were three in the cell, sometimes even four in a cell that is meant for one person. It's still the case even now, and uh, even during during COVID. You know, and and um, we thought that where we stand, we could contribute to bringing solutions to the department since we know the situation in prison. You know, so maybe maybe we'd like to engage with the department further and maybe bring back the feedback of what we want to add as value from in case there will be other pandemics or other challenges later on. Sure. Uh, maybe uh, in in uh, you know I, I'm pretty sure there's a there's a better forum where where all of these issues can be um, uh, addressed in greater detail. But maybe just in 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 bullet points in three minutes for me, if if you could, uh, that thing. Yeah, for me, it's that there's quite a number of uh, organisations and individuals who come to us and we we do to them and yeah, and 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 we engage. It's unfortunate when. You hear some saying that they've been knocking at our doors, but surely we, uh, we, you can still engage with those people. There's nothing stopping us from doing that. As we always say, uh, corruption is a societal responsibility, and we do need that particular insight. But number two, we need to correct certain things. What people may have been exposed or may have seen it in the past doesn't mean that it will stay there as a permanent feature. For instance, the numbers have decreased. Overcrowding has decreased by more than uh, 17%, as I gave you the numbers. I can't remember when was the last time with 140,000 inmates in this country. It has decreased quite significantly. And uh, number three, uh, by law, items that are sold in our shops must not be, the markup must not be above 17%. And profits made out of that 5% must go into sports and recreational facilities for inmates. That police is there, it's applied, and, and there are measures, and, and those books are being audited by a auditing family, and that is also sharply dismissed. But nevertheless, corrections is going to be there for many years to come. It is for all of us to make a contribution. Hence, at no point, the correctional services will say, we don't, want to, we don't want to listen to anyone. All that we want to do is to see people being rehabilitated, not coming back to our centers, especially the youth. It is a concern for TCS. The number of young people coming to our centers is concerning and something that the society will need to deal with. Otherwise, I think the future of this country will be bleak. We've got to find 
a solution so that we can prevent people from going to the lack of crime. Thank you. All right, I'm going to take a break. Um, Tapila, I'm going to I'm going to release you, um, and then uh, I, want to, I just want to cover one aspect, and I want to do so. I'm going to be joined by uh, an attorney, Tumimukwena, um, as well after the break, where we just talk a little bit about you know how the criminal justice system interfaces with the Department of Correctional Services, especially in relation to COVID-19. We're back up to this. The Law Report on Kaya FM 95.9. Welcome back. Uh, we continue our discussion talking about the effects of COVID-19 um, on the criminal justice system. Singabako uh, Ngumalo has to has to go. But before you do, um, can I just ask you this one question, which is, you know, people that were awaiting trial, how did you deal with them um, when COVID-19 hit? That was one area which gave us a sleepless night. For one reason, awaiting trial, we call them remand detainees. Mm. I responsibility of the South African Police Service, but all that we do is to house them, you know, give nutrition and other means. But as a case, we will collect them to court and bring them back. From time to time, we needed to have engagements in the manner in which they are to be collected from our facilities taken to court and be brought back because it meant each time they leave the facility, when they come back, we can't mix them with the others who have been there in the cell hmm. because what if they may have contacted the virus out there? And also the men in which SAPS was transporting them, we, ne- we needed to have meetings with them so that you know, we could ensure that those preventative measures are there. But it's something that I think at, at first it was a serious headache, but with time we're adjusting. And I think suspension of um, a number of um, court sittings with only urgent matter sitting did assist because it limited the movement. Uh, hence, then we're able you know, to have a much better outlook. But uh, if, even when we went to level two, when we started with uh, visits and a number of court cases sitting, the numbers did pick a bit and they went down. So they, they continuously f- uh, fluctuate. But I think what it has demonstrated is that the criminal justice system needs to work as one. Uh, meaning to say that what the SAPS does, correctional services, our courts, you know, everything need, needed to be in sync. But the good thing, we've always had, you know, the, 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 the audiovisual system, the way, you know, you could link up with the court, you know, through like a video system, meaning you don't have to transport uh, a remand detainee to court, but you use that uh, video system. We had needed to ramp that up. With, uh, it, it, it worked quite, quite a lot, especially with cases that are just being, you know, for postponement and left then an inmate in there to go to court. Uh, we had to utilize that. And uh, we do have quite in a number of our centers, but we said we need, we need to increase it because it's even going to transform, you know, the justice system in this country so that you only transport people to court when, you know, when it's necessary to do, to do so. But when the matter is going to be postponed, why then transport that person to court? All right. I think we'll, we'll we'll close it there. Thank you very much for 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 you know for talking to us this evening. I really yeah. I really really appreciate it. No, it's a pleasure, and we we appreciate the opportunity. I, indeed, you are most welcome. Let me let me move swiftly along to talk to Dumi Mukwena, who is um, the proprietor at Dumi Mukwena uh, Attorneys. Uh, Dumi, good evening, and thank you very much for talking to me this evening. Are you well? Evening. It's a pleasure being here. I mean, I remember when um, this whole thing started with COVID-19 early, early, early March, a lot of cases were being cancelled uh, and postponed indefinitely. 
Um, maybe let's just talk about how, you know, how, how this all happened from a point of view of a lawyer, from a point of view of somebody who had um, a bail application or the trial was set down and all the witnesses were lined up. How, how did that how did that play out? Well, the first concern um, from the perspective of, of a defense lawyer is um, the question of, uh, you know, speedy justice. Yeah. Uh, in terms of trials, especially for those people that had been detained or that had been uh, without bail. Mm. Uh, because you, you'd want them or they would also want to have their trials speedily ahead. Mm-hmm. And then you'd also have those people who are recently arrested who must go through the process. Uh, that process including the right to bail at your first appearance and so forth. And that would become impossible because of uh, the congestion in the court, the, you know, the fear that there would be um, contamination or there would be infections uh, at court and so forth. So mm-hmm. that, that uh, adversely affected them. But uh, as we realized at some stage, government uh, took a policy decision to get those uh, with the year of offenses to be released uh, without bail, for instance, yeah. uh, on warning and so forth. And that that went a long way in alleviating the problem. So it wasn't a problem, but there were solutions along the way. And and, and I mean, I, I, I can imagine, that, you know, that served people who had as 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 it would be said sort of your your lighter crimes that served them well but it didn't do too good or wasn't of much help to people that were uh waiting trial for serious um offenses or were hoping for bail applications for serious offenses maybe maybe take us through how the bail process worked i mean you know we know that somebody shouldn't be detained for longer than 48 hours and we know that Every postponement thereafter for bail shouldn't be longer than seven days, and 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 mm-hmm. I'm just wondering whether you know could could those provisions of both the Constitution and the, and the Criminal Procedure Act be observed? Well, the courts would um, at least uh, in in the courts where I practice, um, they would uh, to a very large extent try the utmost to honour those rights. Those are rights contained in the Bill of Rights. You know, it's, it's not easy for a court to say you won't appear or mm-hmm. you won't, there, there won't be a bill application for you. But it is so that a court only functions from 8 to 4 uh, and they can do only do so many matters in a day. So that if, if postponements are necessitated by those reasons uh, and also the fact that uh, if you have too many people in the court, there's a higher risk of infection. Yeah. Uh, that, that's justifiable to, to postpone to postpone the matter. Um, so yes, uh, to answer your question, uh, those that uh, have serious or that had serious offences uh, were adversely affected by by the postponement uh, and the slow general slow running of the courts due to the uh, pandemic. And and what is you know what is the process now? I mean you know it's it. It's no longer a shock to the system that we have COVID-19. In fact, we're so experienced. Um, we, you know, we, we're waiting for the so-called third wave and we, th- there isn't the same sense of panic um, as there would have been with the first uh, lockdown. What is the modus operandi at the moment? How do courts function? Well, uh, not much has changed. 
except to say that my observation has been that the courts are more um, aware of the fact that it's not each and every offender that has to be locked up. Mm. Uh, and the prosecutors, the, the prosecutors as well, uh, have become aware that for those of offenders uh, that have not committed or that are not very serious offenses, release the people on warning. Mm. Uh, the police are also encouraged to, uh, to power that uh, the Criminal Procedure Act uh, gives them to release people on warning. So the, the roles have been uh, lessened, uh, and uh, we we are approaching some, uh, something towards normalcy. And also, uh, there's also the realization that detained persons, be it prisoners or convicted prisoners, the first, uh, the basis of, uh, or the base is that they are human beings entitled to human rights. Mm. And where and how you into account the fact that it's a pandemic, that if uh, they are congested as a gentleman that uh, was uh, hosted on your show just, uh, just a little earlier said, mm. uh, there is congestion in prisons. But also have become much more aware of that fact uh, and, uh, you know, are acting in light uh, or with, the rea- with that realization that uh, people shouldn't just be detained uh, where they would uh, most likely come to court for for their matters and so forth. I, I think that that is the positive that uh, I have seen out of uh, out of uh, this uh, experience that we've gone through or that we're still going through. Well, let's uh, watch and see. I mean, so far it, it looks like we've we've reacted um, quite well as a country um, on on that front. But Dumi, thank you very much for for talking to me this evening. I really it's appreciate. A pleasure. It. All right, that was uh, Dumi Mukwena, and he's from Dumi Mukwena Attorneys, um, just giving us some insights on 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 sort of how the the courts have dealt with this issue. Something that I want us to pay good attention to, um, and that we'll hopefully be talking more about, is 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 a development initiated by the uh, Employment and Labour Minister Tulas Nguyen. Um, and the idea around this development, which is um, is to restrict foreign workers in South Africa, and 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 of course this is always a very difficult conversation, and it depends very much from which point of view you are uh, looking at it from. Um, um, but but from other perspective, it's 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 nevertheless quite a difficult and controversial issue. And it's not just a battle for South Africa; it's it's a battle for, for pretty much um, all countries who are, who are lucky enough to attract interest of foreign workers. And 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 there there seems to be a policy that has been proposed. It's still a policy, which we expect will culminate in some kind of a law, and and we want to start talking about it as now already. Um, because I, I have a sense it's going to be it's going to be very important, and 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 maybe just to you know start flirting with this idea and helping us understand some of the issues. I've 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 asked uh, Vaya Masejo, my producer, um, to speak to to Brandon Shabang, who's an attorney, and um, and Brandon you know has 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 thought about this issue longer than most of us. Brandon, thank you very much for for talking to me this evening. Are you well? Thank you very much, Brad. I'm well, and how are you? 
Very good, thank you. I mean, I mean, maybe talk to us about what the intention is behind this proposed policy, Brandon. Thank you very much. There has been great concerns in the past 10 years in the labor market in South Africa on the uh, influx of foreign nationals in our employment sector. Mm. The employment, we're talking both formally and informally. So the Department of Home Affairs in 2014-2015 then decided to amend the then Immigration Act, which was Act of 2002, which enabled immigrants to come in and do general works. If you remember back then, we'll have what we call general work permits, simply mean any other person, be it a local person or a foreigner, will come in and partake in the uh, general works. This is like sweeping, painting, and so forth and on. So the initiative to bring about change in our labor market was initiated by the Department of Home Affairs first. Uh, the current Minister of Labor, Mr. Tulas Nwesi, inherits an already moving wagon towards the change on that angle. Mm. And and I mean, it sounds it sounds easier said than done, uh, because this issue of employment, you know, when, when the issue of uh, foreign nationals doesn't begin at employment, it begins at immigration, um, which is a piece of a set of legislations that are outside of labour, and then it touches very much on human rights and international law. It seems to me a mammoth task that, that the minister is embarking on. Uh, maybe just, you know, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the various laws that have an effect and, and, and that, that one should have regard to when, when thinking about, for example, putting up a quota and saying, well, in restaurants you can't have more than 50%. And I'm just using that as an example. You can't have 50% foreign nationals. There, there's, there's also the constitution. And, and various other uh, 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 sets of law. You have correctly put it to say the issues start at the immigration level, but most importantly, I submit it starts at an international law level and then comes to a constitutional level. The South African labor force is part a part of the international space. You first of all have to recognize that South Africa is a party to almost every treaty that is in the world. Mm. So if you are to restrict employment in a manner that uh, outrightly and entirely blocks or prohibits the employment of immigrants in all or in certain sectors, the implication goes beyond the domestic labor force. Sure. For instance, I had suggested uh, in my previous interviews that if we were to deal with all these conundrums that are created by the legislation, you count the international law, the constitution of our country, the labor law, the immigration law, the South African human rights, and so forth and on. If these laws are irreconcilable or they cannot reconcile, 
then the current minister will come in and table a policy that will never be law. Mm. Because at the at the end of the day, these are at the moment discussions. As much as they are discussions, they create a mammoth task that becomes impossible for the minister or the department to implement. Uh, if I were to give you an example, the Department of Home Affairs between the year 2002 and 2015 will say immigrants can only work as general workers if they have responded to a advertised job. An advertised job, we speak of that which was uh, made public either through a newspaper or a government-related uh, publication. So any other job that was not advertised is strictly reserved for South Africa. Hmm. So most of the jobs, including front desk assistants, uh, clerks, and so forth, became advertisable in the past years. So there was a concern from unions, Kosato leading in the forefront, to say, but why would you enable foreigners to partake in jobs such as front desk assistant, is there even a need to have this job advertised? Then that led to the amendment of that section, section, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 13 and 14 of the Immigration Act, to the now Immigration Act that speaks of working visa. Working visa does not differentiate between general, court, or uh, exceptional skills and so forth, but it simply says foreigners are primarily invited to partake in scarce skills jobs. Now, how do you define scarce skills jobs if, for instance, you have a country that has declined in industrialization? Because you are going to say to the South African labor market, we are restricting the entry of foreigners in the general work sector. That is like the normal sewing or uh, the normal textile jobs. Yet, you'll be importing 90% of your textile materials. Mm. That simply means you restrict the entry of the foreigners in South Africa, yet you create jobs for foreigners in China to create the same clothes or something that you put mm. it down. What, and, a, what an interesting, yes. What, what, a, what an interesting delivery of that point. Mm. Well, <laughs> on that note, uh, Brandon, um, I have run out of time. Um, I, I, I enjoyed your, the depth of your knowledge and your insights. It, it's really great and, and, I, and I hope we get to talk again. I, I think you, you got a lot to say and, I, and I'd really like to hear more of it. Unfortunately, that's all for, for tonight. I'll see you next week. The Law Report with Michael Mutsuning Bill on Kaya FM 95.9. Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Visit kayafm.co.za for more.